I am here to deliver the official election results. Elliot has lost. Shocker. Uh, Tick has also lost. <laughs> um, what? Our new High King is Margot. <laughs> We're watching Sergio re-deliver his lines. <laughs> but I, wa I wasn't even on the ballot. You won as a write-in. Who wrote me in? The talking animals. It seems you were the only human on the campaign trail who stopped to listen to their concerns. You mean that drunk bear? Humble Drum is a highly respected member of the community. You see, there are certain taboo subjects you broach with him. Bestiality? The talking animals believe that if they were allowed to intermarry with humans, then humans will finally see them as equals. None of us were brave enough to speak out in support of the cause until you. You really love that sloth, don't you? <laughs> uh, welcome back, everyone, to episode 312 of Physical Kids Weekly, The Falorian Candidate. I'm Clara. And I'm Danny. And we have two guests again for this week's episode. Our first plays the hilarious sloth translator Rafe. It's Sergio Osuna. Welcome, Sergio. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. And our second guest has been called the heart and soul of the show by his colleagues in the writer's room. He's written some of my favorite episodes, including Be the Penny and Six Short Stories About Magic. It's David Reed. Welcome, David. Thank you guys for having me. It's it's fun to finally be on the on the on the thing the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm so I'm so excited that that Henry helped facilitate this because he so he emailed me and he said, "Have you ever talked about having David on the show?" And I was like, "I keep tweeting at him and he likes them, but I don't know how to get in touch with him." <laughs> so I'm yeah, glad. I like to uh, I like to randomly like things on Twitter, <laughs> and I actually have talked to Henry about it before because he's had such a good time on the show. So it's always. It's always kind of been in the back of my mind, but I was like, eh, they'll figure out how to talk to me if they want to. <laughs> <laughs> turns out turns out your boss helped with that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Henry is very friendly and he likes to uh, you know, to make people be friends. So yeah. <laughs> cool. Um well we'll start with a couple get to know you questions for each of you. Um First, how did you get involved with the show and what's your relationship with the novels the show is based on? And David, why don't you start? Um, well, I, I kind of consider myself the first employee of the magicians. Um, and by that, I mean that when Sarah and John were uh, first writing the pilot before it was picked up by sci-fi, before it had been bought by anyone, when they had just, you know, they had uh, paid for the option themselves out of their own pocket and they were writing the script, uh, together in John's garage, I had worked for both of them. Uh, separately, like so, this the, the fact right. that they are friends and created a show together is like kismet for me because I had worked for Sarah on the show Supernatural uh, for several seasons, and I'd worked for John on the show The Philanthropist, which was on NBC in like 2009. And so the fact that they are like best friends <laughs> was coincidental to all of that. And so when they first wrote the pilot. Uh, I had been a script coordinator, which is like oh, yeah. the person on the staff who, you know, does all of the formatting and makes sure that the logic, you know, mostly makes sense and <laughs> kind of prepares a script to actually be produced. So I did that for the Magician's Pilot. Um, at the time, I was working on the show Revolution, 
Uh, and just on the weekends, I would work on the magicians as, you know, giving logical notes and asking questions and fixing typos and things like that to get it ready to be sent out to networks to be sold. And then in between when that happened and when the show was actually picked up by sci-fi, um, I had gone to work for John on the show Aquarius on NBC. Right. And so every, you know, basically we have like strip mined Aquarius for magicians personnel at this point. Um, so like Mike Moore was our writer's assistant on Aquarius and now he's a writer on the magicians. Um, you know, there's a bunch of cast members. Sarah was a executive producer on Aquarius as well. Directors uh, that we now know and love on magicians. We first met on Aquarius, several of them. And, you know, Emma DeMont, who plays the white lady, was one of the series regulars. Uh, Gray Damon, Spencer Garrett, who plays uh, Ted Coldwater. You know, the list is truly endless of people that came from that over to magicians. So, you know, and in, in the middle of all this, I had read the magicians just as a person who likes books. Um, so one of the most exciting parts for me was when Sarah said, hey, we're going to do this show. Would you like to come, you know, work on it? She actually, she treated it like she had to convince me. And I was like, I love this book. I love this pilot. I want to work on this show so bad. And she sent me the, um, I guess it's called a galley, the, uh-huh. the unproofed, you know, un, unpolished version of The Magician's Land before it was published. Uh-huh. Uh, because when we were starting to work on season one, you know, the third book hadn't even come out yet. So that was one of the most exciting parts. Was just like I get to find out what happens. Oh my god, before I'm so the rest jealous. Of the world. Same. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty great. And then you know, I, I I truly owe my writing career to a couple of people, but mostly Sarah, John, and um, Eric Kripke, who uh, created Supernatural and Revolution. Who, you know, my first episode of TV I wrote for him. So those three together, ah. you know, kind of they, they made me. I owe them a lot. Sergio, how about you? How did you get involved with the show and what drew you to Rafe as a character? Um, well, I I had auditioned for The Magicians uh, for season, in season one for a different character. Um, I was um, I, I was traveling. I was I think I was in Vegas and I had to put it on self tape. So I did. I did not book that one. So um, um, and then. But just like any other audition and actors, you know, you forget about it and whatnot. And then when I had the when I got the audition for Rave, I was like, okay, I'm gonna binge watch season one. So I did, and I really got into it. Like I I I thought that the story was just so everything was based in reality and mm-hmm. real emotions, real characters, and it gets really dark. And I love that. It gets kind of like weird and i love weird and so when <laughs> when um when i got the sides and everything and i was prepping the the audition for rave um i don't know i don't know if i've told this but they combined uh two episodes and they combined uh, uh, uh i had some of takes lines too and um for the only for the audition and so it was like it was like a lengthy one um, and, uh, so I remember have, having to say at the audition, something about Abigail, um, uh, how she wanted to 
um, um, set spikes on someone due <laughs> to like a fifth spike was going to just like ram into the guy. Not in those words, obviously. Um, <laughs> and I really had fun with that line. And I thought, oh, come on, this character is so weird and it's so like into it, too. <laughs> So I really got into it, um, uh, and uh, I don't know. It, it throughout the the season two and then season three, I feel like he's become a little bit more weird with every single thing that he does and he says, and his relationship with Abigail, um, which I love. Um, um, yeah. So luckily, I didn't book the first one that I had done in season one because Rafe is some someone that I really 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 like <laughs> um yeah so I'm excited about just being Rafe I just have I have a little bit to add to that story because I wrote uh the you first did appearance. write the flying the right. flying forest yes so when we were doing flying forest we knew that we needed to have someone to be uh you know the human mouthpiece of Abigail and we knew that, you know, those parts tend to be very exposition heavy. You know, it's going to be someone who's going to explain the rules of something in Fillory or some situation mm-hmm. happening in Fillory. And so, you know, you end up wanting it to be kind of funny. So when we saw Sergio's audition, we're like, okay, this actually could be amazing. And <laughs> then we, we just saw a couple of little hints. Like, it wasn't our intention in the beginning that Rafe was in love with Abigail, <laughs> but it just was clear. It was like the choice that Sergio made that we're like, this, this is like the, the beating heart of, you know, of, of this character. And we're going to just like gently poke at it every now and then. And so you get to, you know, an episode like this uh, in, in 312, where really a, a pretty big plot turn comes off of that, which was 100% just little looks between Sergio and Sassy the Sloth. And little taps. Uh, on the set. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I know, that little tap, yeah. <laughs> but so it's a, it's a part that was not intended to be like a major recurring part. And then you just see the choices and you, you see the dailies and you're like, hey, this turned out so much better than we even hoped. And so then he just comes back again and again and again um, because you're like, how do I, I, I as a writer, I have to uh, find a way to, exp- you know, to get across this information to the audience. And if we can do it in a way that's full of character and, and you know, that, that the je ne sais quoi, the, the little <laughs> spark of life that, that uh, Sergio puts into it, um, it just makes it all the more special and interesting. Um, and, and secondly, going back to Aquarius for one second, the, the character of Rafe is named after one of the Aquarius writers, uh, Raphael Iglesias, who was oh, this, wow. like, you know, he's a, he's a screenwriter. He's written a bunch of, you know, famous movies. And so he's the same Raphael Iglesias who we put on the Fillory and Further script um, because he was a big screenwriter in the 80s and 90s. So when Quentin in season two finds that draft of the filler and further screenplay, it says written by Raphael Iglesias on it. And that's the same Raphael Iglesias that we named Ray Fasher. So all oh, that's that's nice to to know. Interesting. I did not know that. For me, it's super easy to be in love with Abigail just because of the way that <laughs> it's 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 just there on the page. And I do love Sassy. I mean Sassy's like 
she's so cute and a, a bit <laughs> slow but cute and, and you know she I don't know it, it's just a, a great great uh, character to play I had a lot of fun with it I, I love sloths on like a Kristen Bell level so I understand <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I just wanted to follow up though so who did you aud- originally audition for um, I auditioned for it was, I think his name was Eugenio. Oh yeah, he was the guy that was. He was he was a, a character um, in the Julia story in season oh, one. Oh, free trader. Who was the? He was he wasn't a free trader. He was the guy that was like the um, the doorman at yeah. Marina oh. and Pete's um, little yeah. hedge witch safe house. Oh, and okay. when we first envisioned the character, we were like, oh, this could be like a recurring little thing, like the kind of the muscle out front. Um, and it ended up not being important to the story. So I think we saw him once and, and never again. Well, oh, we're okay. really glad that you didn't get that role then. <laughs> me too. Me too. I thought I nailed that audition, but I guess not. But yeah, me too. <laughs> well, so in a lot of ways, and we sort of touched on this a little bit, um, you play kind of like the straight man in your act with Rizwan Manji. So yes. one of the things I wanted to ask was what you do to bring out Rafe's personality and individuality while you're part of a duo and whether you have to approach things differently as part of that duo than you do in other roles. Right. Um, I think that, that it was important to me to have, uh, 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 a difference between Rafe with Abigail and Rafe with a- any other person. And I think m- a lot of how Rafe interacts with other people, especially with Tick, um, Riz is, it's just Riz is, um, uh, what we do like back and forth. Like, I remember in season two, he did something. One of his replies or lines to me gave me a little bit of attitude. And I, <laughs> I decided at that moment, I'm like, okay, you want attitude back? I'll give you attitude back. So <laughs> I changed my delivery for that next line to, to that. And that became like a, like a, like a thing between us that, um, uh, but that's, that has a lot to do with, Riz's response to anything that Rave has to say and how in this episode I'm working below him like he's you know my boss I guess and I don't think Rave likes that but you know accepts it um I wanted I wanted a, the difference between uh love or in love Rave to the sloth to Abigail and uh the official um uh, Rave that uh, works for in this case, tick to be, uh, I want that to be very different. I think one of the things I really appreciate about your performance is how uh, there always is attitude to Rafe and you can always see it like just below the surface of your face. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like in, in, in the slight tilt of the chin or something, uh, something like right. that, that like tells you that Rafe is not fully on board with what the people around him are doing. And, and that also he probably has a lot of, secret power that we don't know about <laughs> yeah <laughs> piggybacking off that what can you tell us about rave's backstory uh who was he before he was abigail's translator and how did he learn to speak sloth how he learned to speak sloth i think there was a little bit of a of, of um, um uh backstory to that and the um the ratting that episode in mm. 209 when he cannot communicate his frustration of not being able to communicate with right. Abigail because she's, she's a, a rat. She's <laughs> a rat. 
and he says like you know i wish i'd learned how to speak rat in school um um so he uh, the backstory that i have or i created for rave is that he did this is the only language that he learned how to speak properly in a hundred percent because he aspired to be this uh, person to uh, be able to translate for Abigail because he had been a fan for a long time and whatnot. So this is his dream job in my mind. Um, that that uh, gives him a lot of adoration towards her and, and I can build up on that, you know, as, as big um, as I can. Um, and um, so this is a dream job for him. Uh, um, and uh, the fact that Abigail is kind of responding to whatever connection and whatever love that he has for her is just the, the cherry on top. And, um, um, yeah, no, I, 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 he's very loyal. Like you mentioned, he, he's very loyal to her, but at the same time, I don't know if he's a hundred percent on board with some of the decisions that, that she's making mm. Or, or that everybody else is making, uh, and you see that you know hesitance in in, in, in him and some of the lines that he um, uh, delivers and how he delivers the lines. But his loyalty, I find, I mean, I, I would always, or I would always play it to Abigail because um, mm-hmm. she's his main boo. So, so speaking of, of Abigail, um, what is it like working so closely with a live animal? And how is Sassy as a scene partner? She is uh, uh, the best. Um, <laughs> uh, when I when I auditioned for the first time, I read oh, the sloth and I thought, okay, it's going to be a CGI sloth. And then when I got to set and there's no, it's, it's the real sloth. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I, I'm a big animal lover. I've never I've worked with animals before, but I've never with a sloth. And so uh, the handler told me that the, re- the, the the way that they get to know you is by blowing on their face, like a little bit. And so um, immediately I, I, when she got close to me, I'm like, okay, we'll be working together. So I blew on her face and she kind of like looked at me a little bit, like opened her eyes a little bit wider and whatnot. And so, and then throughout the entire season two, I kept, every time we would work together, I would blow on her face again. And then she would calm down and she would recognize me. And I would be the only one who, who would get to feed her, uh, aside from, from the uh, Sassy's handlers. And then uh, from se- uh, season three, um, it was at the beginning of the season, I got to work with her and I blew on her face and she remembered me. Like, she... Honestly, she was like, she was a little bit like hectic. And then I blew on her face and she slowed down and she's like, okay, I got you. Yeah, I remember you. And then in this specific episode, um, when she like tapped on my shoulder to, um, um, I don't know, she wanted, I think she wanted, she was hungry and she wanted more food. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it just blew on her face and she calmed down again. It's, 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 It's amazing to work with with sassy she's the cutest she's so so cute there's that unscripted moment in this episode where she reaches out and you're you're trying to like get a point across to tick and she reaches out and is just touching you and you know i wasn't on set that day um noga landau who i co-wrote this episode with was there 
And I saw the dailies for it. And we just like died laughing in the writer's room <laughs> when we were watching that. Because you just stayed completely in character. And you're like, <laughs> you know, like kind of gesturing. Like, Give me a second, lady. <laughs> just a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, so perfect. It's so perfect. <laughs> well, when we had Hale on, he, he told us that that sassy bites. So has, has she bitten you? No, she hasn't. I gotten I, I haven't gotten that close to her. Um, um, I feed her to get her uh, like close to me, and mm-hmm. uh, so it looks like she's talking to me. Um, but then after that, after I feed her, um, uh, yeah, we we go our separate ways. But no, oh. she's, she's never she's never bitten me. Um, but I wouldn't like it. But I bet you Rafe would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Um. <laughs> uh, my husband, who edits our podcast and watched the episode with me, um, was speculating. He's like, are we going to get a sloth sex scene now? That would be like the slowest <laughs> sex scene in the history of the world. A lot of foreplay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does feel like we're building up to something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so David- I'll start going to the gym. <laughs> 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 All right, so um, we've talked to a few writers from the show at this point, and one of the things that we've noticed is that certain writers seem to wind up telling certain types of stories on the show. So I'm curious mm-hmm. what kinds of stories you're drawn to, David, and what unique qualities you think you bring to the episodes you write. Um, I mean, I think that the certainly in season three, the thing that I was focused on consciously from the beginning of the season was that there's so much TV right now. There are so many opportunities to, you know, change the channel if you're not completely enthralled that we have to really try to make every episode special. And so, you know, when we're trying to figure out what the story of the season is, that's one kind of story breaking process. Like, you know, we have one big story, but I really believe that every episode needs to be its own unique, special little thing. And so, you know, if you look at the ones I've done, 304 and 308, um, both of them are kind of structurally weird Mm -hmm. for us. And I think that's, you know, it's definitely on purpose. It's definitely what I was trying to uh, trying to do is like get to the point where you kind of think, you know, what's going to happen in a typical episode of Magicians and turn it on its head a little bit. Um, I also think that people end up writing kind of sequels to their own episodes. You get invested in a story um, because you spend so much time between, you know, working on the outline and the script and going to set and working on it in post-production. And then you want to go back and you want to figure out how to, you know, finish off that story. Mm -hmm. So things like Quentin's dad in this episode, um, you know, that's a story that he's referenced basically three times in the entire series. And I wrote all of them because it was something that was very personal to me and um, important. And so, you know, in season one, when we first introduced him, um, I wrote that episode and it was kind of just assigned, you know, that's just the order that, that that's just kind of where I landed in the rotation. But ever since then, I've really wanted to go back. And so I think that every writer ends up having issues and characters and storylines that are, very important to them that they want to get back into. Um, you know, like Henry Alonzo Myers really, 
I think takes a lot of ownership over Alice's parents. And so he ends up um, doing a lot of the, you know, he, he ends up working on a lot of those episodes. Um, and that applies to everybody, you know, uh, throughout, throughout the seasons and the whole staff. Um, and, and just, you know, when it comes to how we all contribute to each episode, you know, Henry and Mike are both like very comedy heavy guys. Like yeah. Mike wanted to be a comedy writer before he was ever a drama writer. And Henry's worked on kind of what you might call dramedies, you know, yeah. the kind of light hour long shows. And so, you know, they kind of lean that way. And like John McNamara loves musicals and he loves heists. And like, you can feel, <laughs> you know, those two words should be very familiar at this point <laughs> to magicians fans. And, and you know, when like, he's kind of done that. Um, and like, I think one of the big things that I try to do is find ways to pull the things from the books, from Lev's mm-hmm. books and, and put it into the show because, you know, I'm a huge fan of, his writing and the characters. And even if it's, you know, even if we've written ourselves into a position where we can't do the scene verbatim, if there's just like a hint of something, it makes me feel more grounded and connected. Uh, and, and like, kind of like we're, we're on the right course. Um, so, you know, one of my, you know, personal pet causes on the show is, uh, the, the character of humble drum who you know, <laughs> is very memorably, uh, in the first and third books. And I've wanted to put him in the show since season one. Though when in the season one finale, uh, when they go to the pub, originally it was going to be humble drum that they're talking to, but, but, but it turned out that the acting bear in Vancouver was like hibernating. (laughs) We heard this. It's so great. (laughs) Yeah. They're so so difficult. Yeah. Sometime in season two, I put this card on the wall that just says "fucking humble drum shows up" or David quits. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's kind of like whenever, whenever I'm, I'm like frustrated about something, they're like, "But don't, you know, just, just don't worry, we're gonna get humble drum in there for you somewhere." <laughs> and so this season, finally, we're able to do it. But, but you know, that's just like every every episode. I'm like, is this a place where humble drum might show up? <laughs> <laughs> well, you found it. Um, yeah. so, so, David, I tempted you here in part by promising that we would talk about the Orville. Um, so. oh, oh, my God. I, I, I remember listening to that, and I was wondering if you were going to ask him about it. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so, so, yeah, do you love it, do you hate it, or do you hate yourself for loving it? Um, here's the thing. I don't hate myself for loving anything. Um, I think that there is... You know, we have a tendency as a culture to like kind of to, to shit on things and to team up on and to kind of dunk on bad things. And in saying that, I don't even think that it's like qualitatively bad. I think that it's a really um, interesting and earnest show that is exactly what like 15 year old me would have wanted because <laughs> I'm like the biggest Star Trek fan in the universe. Uh, I question that. <laughs> okay, all right. So we can like, we'll have a nerd trivia contest <laughs> later. But, but I'm a very big Star Trek fan, and as a kid, I didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to be a Star Trek writer. Like that was the the moment when I realized that people could be TV writers was when I was like sitting, you know, sitting at home on the couch watching an episode of Deep Space Nine, and you know the credits pop by and it said written by whoever. And I was like, wait, 
wait. That means that this person's job is to come up with Star Trek stories. And it was like a, a, a light bulb kind of <laughs> moment for me. But so the Orville, I think that it does a better job um, than some of the you know, actual Star Trek series of taking the heart of what I love about Star Trek, which is going to new places and seeing new things and, you know, new ideas about what's possible in the universe. And it fills it with, you know, dumb dick jokes, uh, which I think if you are listening to this podcast, you must enjoy on some level. (laughs) And at the same time, like there's certainly parts of it that I think are just the worst, but I think that's true of a lot of things. And it, it like wears its heart on its sleeve. So I went into it thinking like, I'm going to hate watch this and I'm going to laugh at it. And then I found myself actually being invested in the episodic stories. Well, cause it um, is like, it is the storylines are very Star Trek storylines. And it's just like, it's like what would happen if you created a like Star Trek utopian society, but you populated it with shitty or even just like normal people, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> instead of and, like you know, I know some people. So, so uh, like Jimmy Conway, who is a director uh, who we love on The Magicians and has done a bunch of episodes for us. He directed an episode of it, um, and I think you know, I think he got that gig because he's directed eighteen episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> so he's done you know, a lot of my favorite episodes of The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine he directed. And, you know, he walks onto that set, and what he told me anyway was that it's like it's like walking onto the set of Star Trek. They, they want it to be the same. You know, they have production designers and cinematographers, and, like, they basically are stealing from the ranks of Star Trek to try to replicate that look and tone and, uh, and feeling. Yeah. And I don't know. I think it's I think it's crazy that someone did that, and I think it's crazy that it actually seems to be kind of popular. Uh, but you know, more power to him. <laughs> <laughs> I I watch a lot of TV, so I definitely understand the whole like hate watching TV. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I've always like said that like I've been binge watching TV since like before you know like Netflix was ever really a thing. Yeah. Like, I would buy TV series from Walmart and bring it back home and just, like, watch the whole thing in one sitting when I was, like, 16 years old, Um, which I like to jokingly call, like, that's depression. Um, But joking, not so joking. Um, I don't know why, but, like, with with, uh, movies, I'm, like, a super harsh critic. Like, I will, like like tear something down but with tv i'm just like forgiving i'm just like eh, it's like entertaining it's whatever <laughs> i would say it's like it's the show that i watch on the treadmill you know this is <laughs> yeah. not appointment television for me it's like the show that i watch while i'm at the gym it is. Uh, but yeah. it's kind of perfect for that it holds <laughs> just that amount of attention <laughs> i i also am one of those people who like rides a yes. show through like all the way to the end <laughs> even if i've like started to hate it unless it's like really really bad like I definitely watched Gossip Girl all the way to the end, and was just I felt like that way with hating myself for it. <laughs> I just invested so much time. Yeah, yeah I felt that way with True oh, Blood. Like the last season or two were just oh, kind of. Once there were fairies, I was kind of like, I don't know if this is working anymore. But I watched it every last episode. So. <laughs> yeah, and when fairies were introduced in the Magicians, I was sort of bitter. I was just like, please, 
please don't be true blood again. <laughs> I, I feel like the magicians has done it pretty well, though. <laughs> we had a moment, actually, because we were talking about that when we first introduced the idea. And we're like, is this an area? Like, he's, you know, we are pretty confident that we're going to be able to find a new take on a lot of these kind of supernatural creatures. Um, but we're like, is there so much baggage with fairies that we won't be able to do that? And going into season three, I think our biggest goal was how do we figure out a way to surprise the audience? Because, um, you know, it, it's one thing to have the fairies just be nefarious or to have them be, you know, cute and, you know, uh, kind of that other, like there's those two poles, right? There's the one where they're evil, creepy creatures or the one where they're like Tinkerbell. Yeah. And we wanted to find a way to, you know, kind of let you go back and forth between the two. And it was really the thing I was most scared of in season three was will the fact that, you know, you have all this baggage with just the word fairy, will that keep people from appreciating what we're trying to do with them? And so we spent the most time of any storyline figuring out how to, you know, play with the audience's sympathy and uh, kind of tell a new version of it in a way that, you know, people aren't expecting, but will, you know, we wanted to have somebody actually say about the world and about people with it. So. Mm -hmm. Well, we have one more question before we dive into the episode. Sergio, what other shows do you watch and are there any other projects you have going on right now that you'd like to tell us about? Um, I like to watch pretty like, um, maybe very dramatic shows. Um, um, I was a big, 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 big fan of The Good Wife, and, and now I'm a big fan of The Good Fight, and the fact that <laughs> they can curse in it, that <laughs> makes it way better. Um, um, but I also like, uh, uh, not stupid shows, but funny shows. Um, I love 30 Rock. Right now, like Superstore. I don't know if you guys watch that. It's just I do. Different. I do, and I work for Target, so it's funnier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all, all, all the little things that, yeah, working retail or something. Yeah, oh my God. I, I, uh, someone who works on the show, like, has to have worked for Target at some time. Oh, they for sure. use all of our, like, all of our lingo is, like, in that show. For <laughs> so sure. Like, yeah. Surreal. There's, there's a spy in there. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Um, what other shows do I watch? I also watch watch reality TV sometimes. Um, oh, Sergio! I know. Why do you I do know. that? <laughs> and I just logged off. Um, <laughs> it's, it's my guilty pleasure, and I'm not gonna. And I'm not gonna. I, I'm not even gonna show you the my screensaver, my wallpaper of my phone, because it's. Wait, uh, what is it? It's. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can. It's, oh wait. He says as he grabs it and logs in. <laughs> it's this. Uh, can you see it? Yes, and I don't know what it is because I clearly don't watch that show. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. Oh my god! I get so excited. Don't don't, don't get me into it. But it's it's called Ninety Day Fiance. <laughs> Have you guys heard about it? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just it's just something that you can watch, not even watch, like just on the background. But then you get really into it, and I'm clearly into it. If if it's my wallpaper, just it just makes me makes me smile. Um, I'm gonna have to check that but out. But yeah, my my tastes are I guess all over the place. And um, uh, um, yeah, I've been uh, uh, in terms of projects, I I've 
I finished the week after uh, um, uh, I was done with uh, the magicians. I started working on um, Colony, um, uh, this other uh, sci-fi show, and and it was it was like a um, it was a really good experience. Different, very different character that I've ever done before. Um, uh, so that was exciting, and uh, that comes out uh, I think uh, this summer. And um, and then on Netflix right now is um, uh, this other show that I was shooting as I was shooting Magicians called Dirk Gently. Uh, right. The season, um, I think it was season two. And yeah, I had a few episodes of that too. And um, and right now I'm producing uh, this uh, short film with my. Um, writing partner Catherine Hill and uh, Sharon Van Kooten, uh, our executive producer, uh, that has won three festivals uh, for screenwriting, best script. script. It's awesome. Um, so we're going to start doing that uh, soon, too. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, yeah. And I just finished something else, but I, I, uh, I can't say. The, the one that you're, that you're writing, can you tell us what the title of that is? Um, it's called Empty. And it deals with uh, human trafficking, uh, but in a different kind of way and how um, uh, the relationship between a mother who is searching for her child and this guy who is in the human trafficking world and uh, how this unconventional relationship kind of fills them up and um, as they're dealing with this heavy problem and subject. Wow, sounds heavy. It is, it is, but it's, but it's, uh, it's, it's really, really good. Um, um, I'm excited, excited to good. to do it. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. Episode time. Before we dive in, I'll give a quick recap for our listeners. Julia's powers increase, and she, Penny, and Katie seek information from an old adversary. Meanwhile, Alice and the librarians cook up a plan to contain magic once the questers bring it back, one that could kill Julia. And back in Fillory, Margot becomes the first democratically elected High King thanks to a writing campaign led by the Talking Bear Humbledrum. And in her first act as High King, she grants the fairies full citizenship and convinces the fairy queen to hand over the sixth key. So I'll start with our usual question to Danny. What do you think of this episode? I loved it because I like absolutely like had no idea what was coming in this episode. And... I don't know. I love being surprised with TV. It rarely happens <laughs> because I've watched so much of it. So, um, I mean, I wasn't really surprised with the outcome per se, but just like the episode in general, like how it uh, like folded out. Um, it was kind of like elements that I knew would come back. Like I was like, Reynard's going to come back. Yeah. He's obviously around somewhere. <laughs> um, I was just like, but I loved the, the fact that like, Margot became High King. Like that so I, it was perfect. very touching. It was very touching. Um and as a woman I I might have been a little bit teary eyed. Um. <laughs> yeah, I definitely like laughed, cried, and yelled holy shit at my screen in this episode. So <laughs> um I found it really satisfying too. It worked. <laughs> it did. It did. Um I found it really satisfying too, and both because the election was really fun to watch, um, and I agree with you, like I think especially as a woman, especially after November 2016 um, and because <laughs> it brought together a lot of puzzle pieces that the season has laid 
out. That is by no means finished, and I, as our like long ass text chain <laughs> will will say, um, we left this episode with at least as many questions as we did answers. <laughs> um, but yes. it got me thinking and theorizing, and made me excited for the finale, which is, is I think, what a penultimate episode really should do. So, yeah, um, David, I wanted to ask you when we had Mike Moron to talk about a day in the or a life in the day. Um, I asked him what he hoped fans would take away from that episode and what they would feel. So I, I kind of want to ask the same question to you about this episode. What did you hope fans would get out of and feel um, from the Florian candidate? Um, I think that the most important thing that I was going for, uh, and, and again, I wrote this episode with Noga Landau, so I'm sort of speaking for her right now as well, but we really wanted to break your heart um, with the Quentin story, which, you know, has been something that we set up very early in the season. And at the time, Quentin just set it aside and was like, I can't deal with this right now. So I'm just going to keep on keeping on. I'm just going to pretend like this isn't a problem. And now, you know, I wanted to make sure that we came back around to that and made him face it. Um, but what you're talking about with like your, um, kind of feelings of jubilation at High King Margot, um, that was probably the biggest thing. We, we really have been setting up that story since episode, you know, certainly in the first four episodes of season two, we started talking about Fillory Clinton and yeah. how we can, you know, really tell the story of what it means to be a woman in a like a world that is even more patriarchal than ours, um, but with slightly different rules, and so I think that you know Fillory gives her an opportunity to 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 go into a position of power in a way more easily than she would on Earth. Um, but it also lets us kind of talk around some of those feelings and frustrations that that we have about our world, um, and you know every single story in this really, like you said, this is a penultimate episode. This, there's certain things that we have to do to set up stories for uh, next week's finale. And we wanted to just kind of bring each one to a tipping point. And, uh, you know, bringing Reynard back, we wanted to, to, you know, make Julia face her feelings about him now that mm -hmm. she's in a different position. Bringing Quentin's dad back, we wanted him to face his feelings now that he's in a different position. Margot is facing her feelings about, you know, who she is in relation to Elliot and in relation to Fillory. Um, so it was just, it was a lot about, you know, kind of making people face some of the decisions that they've made in the past um, that now come back up again. Yeah. So one of the things I really love about this episode is the way that it, it twists all the sort of standard assumptions that Tick and Elliot and even I think we as viewers have about what works in politics and um, also like really makes us aware of how critical the women in this episode are to everything that actually does work, right? Like Fenn is the one who suggests enlisting Frey's help to attract the fairy queen. Margot's the one who realizes they can force Tick's hand about the election. And Julia provides the show of magical strength that they need to inspire Felorians to vote children of Earth into power. Can you speak to that? Was it intentional? Was it something that you were like you and Noga were thinking about as you were crafting this? Um, it it certainly was intentional and it's it, more than just me and Noga, you know, we are 
really taking Sarah's vision for the characters of Margot and Julia, especially, and where she wanted to take them over the course of the season. Like one of the first conversations we had about Margot um, for season three was like, where is she at the beginning? Where is she at the end? Is there a way that we can put her into that position of power that she's kind of always wanted and always felt like she'd be good at, but because of the rules of Fillory, she was kind of held back from. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. We were trying to uh, show in all of those stories that these are, you know, they're, they're some of the smartest characters on the show and they have a lot of agency and they have a lot of um, really good ideas. And, you know, it's not like they've never screwed up on the show. Um, so like we want them to be real, but we also aren't going to just like hand the victory to the dude just because he's the, you know, he's the star of the show or he's the, you know, biggest face on the poster or whatever like that. We, we always want to kind of have an even balance. So, um, a, a lot of, there's been a lot of talk among fans about the title of this episode. Of course, most fans haven't seen it yet. So, uh, <laughs> they're sort of still in the dark about a lot of stuff. Um, the Florian candidate seems like a pretty clear reference to the, the 1962 film, the Manchurian candidate, which rolling over the details, there's a communist sleeper agent and some like government and assassination plots. So because of that, a lot of fans speculated that there would be a sleep in, sleeper agent among the questers. And I want to ask you, was that a red herring or should we remain vigilant? Um, <laughs> I want to uh, let you remain vigilant. <laughs> I, I think I choose to always keep you remaining vigilant. Um, sometimes the episode titles are very meaningful and like we think about them a lot and sometimes it's kind of a dumb pun <laughs> and you know like last season christina strain and i wrote episode 12 um, this is sort of my thing now it's like writing the penultimate episode um and the title of that is ramifications and it literally was like there's rams in it and we thought that was funny <laughs> um, and that was like that's all there is <laughs> that's all all the thought that went into it and in this one you know noga and i had a list of titles and we kind of just, we sat there for about an hour in my office one day, just like trying to make each other laugh. And, you know, you can take from it what you will. But uh, <laughs> we, we thought a lot about this one. Uh, well, I have to admit that I'm a little disappointed that my theory about Rafe didn't turn out to be true. Uh, but I <laughs> think there's one thing I got right. Rafe is more influential and more knowledgeable than either Tick or the children of Earth give him credit for. So, Sergio, how do you understand Rafe's role in Florian politics, and how does that differ from the way the other characters see him? Um, well, first of all, just uh, speak uh, about your uh, theories. <laughs> um, I wish one of them was true, because I, I would have loved to have, uh, have worked more with the fairies, and especially the Candace. I mean, she's amazing. Um, uh, um, so that would be like a, a you know, Sergio preference. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Um, and um, I do think that um, uh, he he does have, I, I feel that Rave does have a little bit more of, um, uh, of, of I guess, um, say, but, but in politics, especially like in, in this episode. But I think it's it's it all has to do with Abigail and it has to do with where her, um, um, interests lie, I think. 
and he's very um, loyal to uh, the people people of Fillory, and um, especially um, um, his sloth, his love. But um, and I think that's um, um, where it's it, it can all um, stay because I think he's, he he might be a bit restrained in in the things that he can do because. Uh, um, as you can see in this episode, he works for Tick, and I don't think that he is happy about that. But but this is his job, and this is what he what he needs to do at the at the moment. Um, um, but yeah, the 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 loyalty remains with the um, Valorian people. And um, uh, to speak about going back and 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 something that David said. Um, um, the way that Margot in that scene when Rave tells mm. Margot that she has become the high queen, the high king, sorry. I loved this scene, especially so because of what Summer did. Mm-hmm. Every take that we that we did, she was like bringing it and bringing it and, and being more and more beautiful and, and honest and vulnerable. And, and she, it was like a culmination of... of everything that that this show represents just having female uh characters and in, in power and and strong and unapologetic and and having the recognition of not only um hail elliot but of the people of fillory that she is the one who who should be hiking that, that she just did it beautifully and and um i just had to say that you know, it was an on, an honor and a pleasure to work with with her because she's amazing too. Does that mean that Elliot is going to be a queen now? <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to uh, wait and see uh, what happens in the season finale because you know the the status quo on the show never stays the status quo for long. So yeah, um, so. I, I just was dying laughter because I'm just like Elliot as a gay man. I'm like, he's a queen now, right? <laughs> <laughs> I really loved, by the way, um, that line, the like double entendre for bear. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Oh, that, was, um, that, that was, that was Henry, funny. Henry Alonzo Myers pitched that in the room, uh, just kind of as a joke. And I like worked the entire scene <laughs> around that. I could put that in. <laughs> It was too good. I I don't blame you. <laughs> One of the greatest um, lessons that Sarah and John have kind of uh, taught me over the years is that if you really care about something, like say you're obsessed with a talking bear being on the show, <laughs> um, the way that you get it into the show, the way that you make something stick, uh, whether it's a joke or a character or a, a plot point, you have to make it vital to the plot. So this episode really a bunch of things happened because I was like, I want to see humble drum. I want to have a couple of these jokes. I want to have a couple of these moments and set pieces. And it, it was all about figuring out how to make them vital so that you couldn't cut them. So you couldn't get <laughs> three days into prep the episode and someone like brings out a spreadsheet and they're like, look how much a bear costs. <laughs> like, <laughs> could you please cut this whole thing? Uh, because it's like, well, this, you know, the entire future of Fillory hinges on a conversation with a talking bear about bestiality. So, you know, it's absurd, but it also, that's kind of like the heart of the show to me. It's like finding those things that 
are a little weird and a little absurd, but still have like human feeling behind them. And then you're like, oh, wow, this is like a major plot point. This is going to change you know, the future of the show. Yeah, I like Fillory is always just kind of like it's known for its absurdity at this point, I think, like. Like, I was watching it with my girlfriend and she was just like slightly turned off by the bestiality and I was like you just have to remember Hillary is not Earth right? <laughs> they have talking. different taboos yeah yeah. Um, so I do uh, want to get back to it and it says at one point Fenn comments that the human vote means nothing in Hillary and Wraith says that she's right that the human population is dwarfed by the population of talking animals that makes it seem like Rafe is actually in a pretty powerful position for a human. Do you think that's something he's aware of, or how do you imagine he'll wield that power? I think that he is aware of it, especially since he's the one who can communicate uh, whatever it is that the animals are saying. Um, but I, I, I don't know if he... He's aware of it, but I don't know if he knows how big of a, of a um, power this can be, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, uh, because at the same time I've been playing him like he knows his place. He knows where he is, um, mm-hmm. in the, um, in the pyramid or in the, you know, spectrum of things. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, the, the animals are powerful and he can communicate with them and, and he, it, it makes them powerful as well. I'm really looking forward to seeing how, cause in that scene where he's delivering the news to Margot, um, and he he delivers that line about not having the courage to speak up. I'm really looking forward to seeing to seeing that change because it, it seems like it will. It seems like he's going to develop that courage and start taking on more of a active role. Right. I remember when we were shooting that scene. I don't know if you remember this, uh, David, but you uh, you you added a line um, for for um, Margot. That wasn't there uh, while we were shooting it, and then he, that line when she says, "You really love that slot, don't you?" <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, that which was, was just, based yeah. on uh, your performance in the rehearsal, because you know we we with the director and the actors before we shoot, we rehearse the whole thing, and then they figure out where they're going to put the cameras. And in between the rehearsal and when we shot, I was like just thinking about, you know, how precious <laughs> this little. <laughs> relationship between Rafe and Abigail was and how like <laughs> I really wanted people to understand that like this that's what, what this was about like this whole right. story was about like us having realized that there are things that of course we on earth think are taboo but Fillory right. is a place where like an animal is a person and right they that, that they would have some of the same problems that we have where they are not given full personhood by right. because of the this you know social mores and and kind of quote-unquote morality of others and you know i think that's what like science fiction and fantasy is really good at is like you can do the funhouse mirror version of our problems and we don't have to just be like hey everybody you should be nice to gay people like this is (laughs) simple like just do it just be be good human beings um but we can kind of put it through a different lens yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, that was totally because of, you know, the little quiet, the, the little smile that, <laughs> that Sergio had on his face 
delivering his lines. I was like, you really do love that song. <laughs> and I thought that was and I thought that was perfect because it kind of brought it back. It it took the bestiality of, uh, taboo aspect of it, and I'm doing air quotes, um, and brought it back to a, uh, an innocent kind of kind of space mm. and an innocent spot. Whereas you know, um, two I can't say people, but two uh, entities loving each other, and what can be bad about love? You know what I mean? And and uh, and I like that that little. Um, uh, line that you guys and then Joshua saying like do a little bit more like you know quirky face or like give me right. another expression <laughs> yeah we shout out to uh, to Josh Butler director yeah. of this episode and many magicians episodes who really always find the way to to, to dig out those little yeah. emotional moments um, you know he he is an expert at at kind of understated little romantic yeah it's between characters, you know, in scenes that otherwise aren't even about that. Um, I right. think he did a great job on this one. He did. Okay, so um, I, we had some more questions, but I think we probably need to move on to things that aren't in the Fillory plotline uh, just for time. Um, so before we do, though, Sergio, I, I know you had said that you had some questions for David. Um, so I wanted to give you a chance to to at least ask one of those. I think that he, I was in awe listening to when he was talking about the the the, um, the whole writing of this episode and and how um, the whole process is. That those those were kind of my questions. So he answered them already, um, and about the the different plot lines and how it works for every writer to to write um, their favorite character or their favorite plot um, points and 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 over the course of a season so i think yeah he answered them already and, and i don't know if you noticed but i was like looking at yeah. him listening to him like oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've seen you being and, I, <laughs> and then and then I, I i don't know if i asked you this but since were you on set when the when the uh, bear was was there no so the greatest tragedy of my life is <laughs> well it's two it's two things it's that after seasons like literally three seasons of trying to get this talking bear um because of just the schedules uh no galanda was the writer on set for the bear day um, so she sent me a lot of pictures and videos and you know i i got to enjoy it vicariously through her but i wasn't there uh, but in, another fun thing about humble drum uh it's not in the final episode but my little brother was the original voice of humble drum because I had a very specific idea for what humble drum would sound like uh, oh, wow. after thinking about it for years. So I was <laughs> like, Hey, Aaron, my brother, please send me, he's recorded it on his phone. Do you like, bye Margo. You know, he has like kind of a, <laughs> a rough beer like voice to that. And then the other, uh, the other thing that I kind of feel like I, I missed out on and um, it's kind of a, my personal tragedy is I'm a huge, huge, huge West wing fan. And so Marley Matlin, uh, being on the show many times, I've written, you know, I've written scenes for her many times, and I've never once been on the set the day that she was there. Oh. I've always had oh, to come back, um, come back early to keep breaking the next episode. Um, but it, it, that actually, I wanted to to mention something. The character of Rafe, um, functionally, the way that we use Rafe, 
that's based on the West Wing and Marley Matlin's character on on that show, um, Joey Lucas, because she has a character who is her, um, you know, uh, I guess translator. I don't I don't know what the technical term is, but someone who can translate interpreter. Yes. Thank you. Um, Her interpreter. And that was sort of what we were thinking with Rafe was that Rafe would kind of be the, you know, the person standing next to Joey Lucas um, and interpreting for her. And there's this one episode where they are talking about some very, you know, important political stuff involving the president's MS on the show. And they are like, wait, 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 wait. Does anybody even know what this guy's last name is? Like this guy who's the interpreter. <laughs> My husband asked MS? that about Rafe's last name. <laughs> as we were going we into this. I don't think we've ever said what Rafe's last name is. Um, <laughs> but, but that was sort of what we're thinking that about Rafe and how like there's this guy who's there who is sometimes like maybe he is, you know, making up what Abigail said. Maybe he has his own idea right. and he's just kind of right. passing it on as like, yeah, I know Abigail said you should definitely like give me a raise. <laughs> I definitely thought that. I've had moments of time where I'm like, hmm, is he like making this all up? Like, <laughs> he would yeah, never just love. He would never yeah, betray Abigail in that way. <laughs> and I, I um, just want you to to know that just you saying that Rave and um, it's a little bit related to Marley Matlin's character that I could die right now. Um, <laughs> I'll retire. I'll put it on my Twitter bio, my resume, and then that's it. <laughs> See you guys. That's insane. Perfect. Oh, um, okay. So turning away from Fillory now, um, actually, I think we've both been pretty curious about the role of mythology in the show, particularly in this season. Mm. At points, it seems like the show's casting a wide net with elements of different mythological traditions, just like the books did. But at other times, as in this episode, it seems to hew much closer to the Greek canon. So there's like a million questions in this, but I think the starter is what kind of approach have you, David, and the other writers taken in drawing from these different traditions? And how do you understand the role of like divinity and mythology in the show? I think that what we're trying to do is very similar to what Lev does in books, which is that there are parts of myth that are true and and that our characters will learn are true. And there's parts that, you know, aren't. And then there's also combinations. You know, there's there's gods that are like, oh, this god was actually five gods across mm. these different, you know, religions and traditions. And so we never want to to tie ourselves to one. Like we certainly have done a lot of Greek stuff this season. Um, but that is not to say that that's the, you know, in the universe of the magician's TV show, that that's like the one true mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that w- the way that we look at it is that our characters have these reference points, you know, because in the United States, we are taught a lot of Greek myth as children. Like it comes up a lot in our culture and in our school, um, and so I think that these are just the easy access points to some of these stories for our characters. Um, and we are always looking for ways to, you know, turn them just a little bit so that it's not quite what you've heard before, not quite what you've seen before, not quite what you're expecting. Um, but then you also want to be able to be like, hey, here's shorthand. You know, here's here's a way to, like, get at the idea of, you know, like Bacchus, for example, mm-hmm. in uh, episode 301, that was a case where we could have made up a new name. 
But I think it actually helps the audience if you're at all familiar with the myth of Bacchus that you're like, okay, I get, I get that archetype. I get what, yeah. what, you know, how that Lego piece clicks into this story, um, using that name, but like maybe he has a dozen names across a dozen different traditions. And this is just the one that he's presenting with today. Um, but yeah, we think about it a lot. We think about like, you know, how much should we be drawing from all these different places you know, we also think a lot about like appropriation and how we don't want to um, be glib or um, not like, like disrespective of other uh, other cultures and mythologies. So, you know, in this case, I think that because the Greek and Roman uh, myths are are so prevalent in our society, they're just it's the shortcut that gets us there the fastest. Well, I've been thinking a lot in the last few days. I mean, not just the last few days, but especially with this episode about uh, Titanomachy. Do you know? Mm -hmm. Like, so this is the the original um, war between the the titans who were sort of who predate like most of the Olympians and the Olympians, right? Where like uh, Zeus cast them out, and like there's a lot of variants on like a sort of new Titanomachy that you see in popular in pop in like TV and literature. And they're, they almost always follow like some version of the same thing, which is like Hades or some other God, but usually Hades like gets sick of Zeus being in power and decides to like bring the Titans back to create a new war so that he can overthrow Zeus. Um, and I, I'm sure that you can't say almost anything about where the finale is going, but I just want to put it out there for our listeners that we've been talking about that. We have been talking about like, what the heck is Cassandra's story? We've been talking, well, people know we've been talking about Hades cause that's been going on for like episodes and episodes. We were like, and we knew he'd show up. So, right. <laughs> you were talking about like whether Julia had some relationship to Hera, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Cause Julia's going to open the door and the person who opened the door to the Titans coming out was Hera and Hera's spiritual animal happens to be a fucking peacock. So (laughs) (laughs) the person who sent them on a quest (laughs) happens to be the great cock. So I don't know. There's a lot of stuff and we, we are always like piggybacking off each other, like sending each other different theories. (laughs) And there's a huge one going around right now that Hades also happens to be Penny's dad as well. Because um, otherwise, why would he want to insert himself into his life? Do you know, if that, seems- do you know huh? if that theory is like in across all timelines? I mean, I guess it would have to be. I don't, I don't know how timelines work, but <laughs> I would have think so. Yeah, but Penny twenty three is shady as fuck. So he is. I am glad you agree with me because, like, <laughs> everyone on Twitter was like, "Oh my god, he's so much. He's such an upgrade. He's more compassionate. He's like so in love." And I'm like, "Do not trust that bitch." <laughs> <laughs> I don't trust him. <laughs> yeah, so we, I don't trust. We have a lot of questions about mythology, which you probably can't answer. But uh, are we going to see more at the end of the season? Can you answer that? Uh, in the finale, there's a little bit more mythology. Yeah, there's there's uh, a, well one character in particular uh, from from Greek mythology that comes up in a big way in the finale. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, I think you're just gonna have to wait and see. <laughs> well, good thing we don't have to wait too long. So. Yeah. <laughs> so another one for David, and this is basically kind of something we just talked about. What's Penny Twenty Three's deal? 
why does he care if Julia and Katie kill Reynard, and why does he want them to use the la- the god-killing weapon that they have? <laughs> I think that Penny is very... Um, he doesn't always present this way, but he actually is a very uh, empathic, empathetic, empathetic character. He's mm-hmm. a guy who... You know, especially this version of Penny, Penny 23, you know, you might notice that he's he doesn't kind of take charge of scenes the way that, you know, Penny 40 would. He -hmm. sometimes stands in the back and is kind of observing because he's trying to understand this new place that he's in. And I think that when he looks at Katie and Julia and Renard, you know, he's been told this story just very recently like like he had no idea about any of this in his timeline and he so it's very fresh for him and when he hears about what happened to this version of julia a character who you know a a person to him who he loves uh, and had a very very profound connection to in his own timeline i think it's like if you found out that someone you loved had been you know assaulted in this way like you want to do something about it like the thing he doesn't want is to just, you know, have to wash his hands of it and walk away. And Mm -hmm. Katie and Julia are in a very different position because they've been dealing with this for two seasons, like the trauma of it and how they feel about it and how they're growing beyond it and what it means to them. So they're, I think, in a more um, evolved place than Penny, 23, who's just, you know, it's still a very fresh, raw wound for him. Mm -hmm. So he's like... He's in this scene thinking, you've just been given a weapon that can finally take out this guy who you've wanted to kill for two years. Like, how can you walk away from it? And I think that Katie, at the beginning of um, season three, would not have made the same choice that she makes at the end of season three. She's learned a lot, and she's, she's come a long way. And Julia, you know, is becoming a different thing. Like, she's... She is really going through a metamorphosis. Um, and so both of them, you know, are in a position to take uh, a different view of the situation than Penny 23 is. He's more reactive and they're more, you know, they're up there in their heads and he's in his heart a little bit more in that scene. Um, which I think is a really cool place to put them because usually Katie feels like the more emotional of the two. Um, you know, she's much more likely to wear her heart on her sleeve and Penny tries to hide his Mm -hmm. and this version of Penny is still trying to figure out where he fits in that you know he doesn't know what his relationship with Katie is going to be or what his relationship with you know Julia Forty is going to be so following up on that a little um, we've seen pretty repeatedly Julia has chosen kind of justice over vengeance on the like spectrum between the two Um, sometimes at great personal cost Um, but there are other characters who who kind of consistently choose vengeance over justice, and we actually saw. I, mean, I think you can sort of argue about whether there's justice there too. But you know, we saw the red dinner party in episode three ten, which definitely has a lot of vengeance in it. Um, so mm-hmm. one of the things I'm wondering, I've been wondering about, is what kind of stance, what whether the sort of show as a whole has a stance on that kind of morality issue or whether it's something that like is whether whether it's something that like you've even really explored in the writer's room um and what sorts of things you're thinking about when you grapple with those issues in the show 
I think it comes down to each character. You know, this the show as a whole, I don't think has a stance beyond that. Um, you know, there are some things that are unforgivable hmm. and what the consequences for your actions are, are going to really depend, but the world isn't perfect. Yeah. So mm-hmm. people aren't always going to get what they have coming to them. And sometimes you have to, you know, going back to season one, one of the big lessons for Quentin um, was that you fix what you can, you know, that, that sometimes all we have is tiny, tiny little bits of power to fix one little thing. And you just hope that if you fix enough of those, you can make a big difference. Um, and we, we've been talking about that a lot, um, not only in season three, but even now as we are starting to talk about the stories in season four. So I think the difference between that story with um, the Red Dinner Party and the story with Reynard is that, um, you know, first of all, it's not... It's not exactly the same crime, um, but it's also not the same people that had that crime committed against them. And I think what matters is, like, what is going to bring Julia peace? Mm-hmm. What is going to bring Katie peace versus the fairy queen and all the fairies um, and, you know, Julia and Fen in that situation? Uh, and, and they're just very different because they're very different people. I really love that Katie finally gets to kind of let this go, like it's been something that I've been hoping to have resolve over because I know that that really like screwed her up, um, having to walk away from Reynard. Um, yeah. Katie kind of has had that problem again and again, you know, where she doesn't quite, she's never quite getting what she wants. I really, um, I was really feeling for her in this episode. Like Penny is just has now been replaced by a different Penny and it's gotta be traumatizing for her. I, I was thinking a lot about um, Quentin delivers that line to Alice about how there's eight questers and only seven keys. And there were like a lot of little moments in this episode that that sort of look at how a bunch of different characters are kind of the odd one out. Um, and I don't know, I don't have any like interpretations of that yet. It's just one of those things that's been like kicking around my brain and I found really interesting and kind of hooked me. Yeah, one of the things that we we took from the books the idea that you know, they're all the odd one out. Yeah. Like everybody that is a magician is like by definition, like a little bit weird and a little bit special. And, you know, they're all like the smartest people from where they came from. And now they're all together. And like in a way that's makes them all the same, but like by definition, they're all special, unique, different. They all come with their own damage. Um, you know, as a theme, as an overarching theme for us to build off of, I think that it's really kind of cool. Well, and it's it's not just the actual magicians, right? Like as Sergio was talking about earlier, uh, Rafe is that way too. Tick is that way too. There, this is a show where every character is an individual and a weirdo, and it's it seeing all those weirdos come together, they make something really kind of beautiful and <laughs> right. And I don't think that like our fillery stories would work without that kind of energy. Like if we were doing the thing where the people of Fillory are just kind of like generic peasants, um, you know, you just wouldn't care about that story the way that you do when we can populate it with characters like Rafe and Tick. Mm-hmm. Right. And and as a as a fan of the show myself, every time I, I watch it, it it's just every single character is very well written and you understand what 
why they make the choices that they make and where it's coming from. And it, it's always based out of a real uh, place. Um, um, so I, I, that just speaks to the, the, the great um, writers of the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have- Without, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have one last question before we move on to fashion. So at the end of the episode, Quentin tells his father that he named his son after him. But Quentin's father is credited as Ted, while his son is credited as Rupert. What are we meant to take away from that scene? Does Quentin believe that his father is Rupert Chatwin? Is he? Um, well, I can tell you the behind-the-scenes story of that, uh-huh. which is that when we were working on episode uh, five where Quentin's son appears, he didn't actually have a name. Like, there was a name that we gave him, I think, in the script. Because sometimes what you end up doing is you name a character um, kind of for the sake of the actor. Because Uh it's just better for them if they have a character name versus, like, you know, secretary at desk, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So Mike Moore named him Rupert because he's like, Quentin's a nerd. Like, why not? Yeah. And when we, um, and then there was one line of dialogue in that episode where he said Rupert out loud, and it was cut. It was cut from, because that episode was extremely, extremely long when we first, I don't know if Mike talked to you about that. On, I really on that episode, hope but, we see all of it. <laughs> yeah. I like on well, the DVD extras. It's, it was, it was so much stuff. Um, but like, it, it wasn't actually all that much extra. It was just like, Every shot was just a little bit longer, mm-hmm. um, and they found a way to really cut it in a in a way that I thought was beautiful. Like it's the only time that I've watched the show and actually like teared up, like Ugh. watching something that I worked on. Um, but so when we were working on this episode, we knew we had the scene where Quentin was going to go talk to his dad. But when we go to, you know, we work we work out the whole story together, and then we go off to write an outline. And me and Noga went off to write the outline, and we kind of for the outline wrote it was almost like a placeholder. Like we are going to figure out what this scene is about and like what the emotional core of it is. And then Noga and I really like just banged our heads against the wall for several days trying to figure out like, how do we, how do you wrap up all of the complicated feelings we had about the quest and the purpose of it and the purpose of Quentin's life and what his dad means to him in in one short scene and so there was something that you know that came to me eventually uh and i went and asked mike i said hey does it matter to you if this character's name is actually rupert or if we can go back and retroactively say that his name is not rupert it's and a retcon like, oh, <laughs> it's not well it's not a retcon though because the only thing that like the it was it was just like nobody ever told I guess our post-production people that we had renamed the characters like, you know, before that episode was done being made, we had already renamed the character and Mm -hmm. there was like an old draft of a script that they were going off of when they put the credits together. So his name is not Rupert. It's just, you know, that, that was, that kind Uh, of slipped through the cracks. (laughs) I got Uh, so excited. (laughs) So what's his dad's name? Is it, is it just Ted or is it like Theodore or Edward? (laughs) His, His name is, Theodore. And okay. Because yeah. <laughs> okay. that. All right. 
Yeah. So he's not Rupert Chatwin, which is funny because actually the actor who plays Quentin's dad looks kind of a lot like the young Rupert Chatwin yeah. actor. Uh, like, I never thought about that. I'm just going to point out <laughs> that David didn't actually say that it's not Rupert Chatwin. He just said that true. the son is not named Rupert. True, true, true. <laughs> but is, is, the, is the question, is Quentin's dad Rupert Chatwin? Slash does he think that he is, yeah. Or, or we also threw out the possibility that maybe his son is right. Rupert Chatwin. Oh. That um, was a thing. Yeah, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, fashion. Claire was, like, screaming at me before I'd seen the episode. I was screaming about, at like, you. Like, the last, like, two minutes of the episode, and I was like, I'm at work right now, but you're, like, really firing me up. I have, like, this list um, of texts, and if I, if you, like, blanked out mine, all it would be is just, like, seven texts from Danny that just say, ah, with more and more A's and H's every time. <laughs> Yeah, she really had me going. Um, <laughs> but I think it would be, like, I, I really want to see Quentin's son pop up again because mm-hmm. I feel like he's going to be relevant at some point because mm. Chekhov's gun. <laughs> but also we got literal Chekhov's gun in this episode. <laughs> yeah, you guys were talking about that on the, on the last episode. You're like, when is that God-killing bullet going to come back? And I, you know, I was listening to Mike and Henry's answers, and they're like, hmm, yeah, oh, that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely had the impression from them that it was going to be soon, just by their eyebrows, yeah. if nothing else. <laughs> so, yeah, you can yeah. tell like by the look on their face. They're just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can... Sure, whatever, speculate. Uh, Okay, so fashion. Um, And y'all should feel free to jump in at any point in here. The way that we usually do this, we just kind of like run through a list of fashion things we noticed. And there's a lot in this episode. So like if you have any insights, please just go ahead and, and, you know, scream them out or whatever. So the first thing I noticed, and you're going to be really happy about this, because the first thing I noticed was Julia, Danny. Literally, literally one of my first notes down, though, is that Julia just looks incredible. (laughs) Like... Her hair, when it's, like, actually, like, done, like, in the back, I was just like, I don't think I've ever seen her wear her hair up in any way. And it looked good. It is good. But, so, the the big thing that I called out was her necklaces. Because early in the Mm -hmm. episode, she's wearing this, like, smaller necklace with what looks like a moonstone or an opal in the middle. And it's flanked by two crescents above and below it. So, there's, like, some moon imagery there. And then a little bit later, when she's, like, praying to OLU and then uh, ends up in Fillory, she's wearing another kind of, like moon evoking necklace but it's it's bigger and the two crescents are really just like they look like they're made out of bone and they're they're these kind of thin things um and there's a gold hassle hanging below them but then when she and katie and penny go out to get to find renard she's wearing both of them and i don't actually know that i have any theories about what that would mean if it means anything but it's the kind of thing where, like, I'm so used to the costume department really thinking through all those details that it hooked me and it made me think, like, there's got to be something to that. And I, I wish I knew what it was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you finally noticed something that Julia was wearing because <laughs> she always, at, like, the end of every episode, basically, is like, so what did Julia wear? Because I'm the only one that pays attention. Because um, I want, I very much want to steal her wardrobe. Um <laughs> So, but gathered on, like, what Claire was talking about, like, do you guys have any insights you'd like to share? Uh, about you the significance any? of Julia's wardrobe in this episode. I don't think that I really have anything to add to that. Um, I think that Magali always does a good job. And sometimes it's, like, written in the script 
you know, like I had a lot of very detailed thoughts about what Hyman Cooper should wear this season. Hmm. And then sometimes it's like there's an overall discussion, you know, with her about where a character's going, how Julia is becoming a little bit of something else over the course of the season. And that's reflected, I think, a lot in Julia's wardrobe. Um, and I think even more so when you see the next episode in the season finale, she's got kind of a cool, a little cool change up in her in her look. Um, but in this one, I don't I don't think there was uh, nothing really pops out at me as like something she's, that we layered in purposefully. Yeah, she's wearing a lot of lighter colors. Like it just yeah. keeps getting lighter, um, more like flowy too. Like mm-hmm. not as tight, I guess. This is just something that Sarah Gamble really, really, really has a lot of strong feelings about and works in very close collaboration with um, Magalion uh, and with all the hair and makeup people. Um, so this is one of those areas where the rest of us as producers are just like, yep, go ahead, do your thing. We, we trust you. Yeah. Yeah, they know what they're doing. They, they know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, she's also kind of a little bit reminiscent of Julia season one before. Yeah. Before shit goes, goes crazy. Yeah. I've been noticing that her hair this season is much more season one, Julia. It's just kind of neat. Um, okay. So one of the other things, this is just a me ranting about things that I love. Um, I love that Fenn is still wearing pants, even in Fillory. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Actually, you know, that was the one conversation that, that we really did have, which was that when Fenn goes back to Fillory, what is, what does she take with her from Earth? How is she different? And so the the pitch was that it's like she's half Fillory and half Earth now, and that she really has, you know, like, she actually loves Earth, and she takes pieces of it with her. <laughs> so she's gonna, you know, like she's added jeans to her to her closet. Yeah, yeah, I love I, it. I want to, I want to see her with like a an emoji pillow or something like on her bed. Oh like. my god, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That, that'll be what happens when she finally does leave Elliot for Todd. They, they will have yeah. emoji pillows all over <laughs> that, their bed. <laughs> that's what we want is, is Fen and Todd, if, you, if you're not aware. <laughs> I'll take that under advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what you were saying, though, I mean, I, one of the things I really like about it is, is both that she sort of is taking these things from Earth, yes, but also that it seems like she's realizing her time on Earth helped her realize that she could have an identity of her own separate from Elliot and separate from the expectations that the world she was born into has always placed on her. And, like, I think I've been really keenly aware because we know it's happening with Julia and we've seen it happening with Margot of the way that, like, each of the female characters is kind of, like, coming into their own power in this season and I think with Fenn more than almost anybody else I've really seen it in her wardrobe and um it 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 feels so natural and so I don't know I just love it so yeah one of the I think themes of the show is that uh power is sometimes handed to men and women have to take it um and that's certainly true of Margot and it's a little bit true of Julia this season and Fenn is a character who, you know, originally the idea was she'll be in a couple episodes and then, you know, we'll see what we think. And like, maybe, you know, Elliot will figure out a way to get a divorce in Fillory. And we just kept loving all the stories and all of the performances. And so, you know, you start thinking, okay, well, how do we take this character who is intended as an obstacle for Elliot 
and like now she's her own person and have her own storylines and you know really doesn't even share that much screen time with Elliot across the season this is you know they have their big reunion in this episode uh, yeah. after many episodes apart and I think that's just really a, a cool thing that we got to explore because she very easily could have just been you know Elliot's fillery sidekick who is there to cause problems for him I feel like that's a testament to how much Brittany loves Finn. <laughs> she, yeah, she, does. she She loves does. Finn, and she has really made everybody love Finn. Um, and even, like, Elliot and Finn in this episode, just, like, you can tell that they really deeply care about each other now. Um, they're kind of ride or die for each other, even though they don't even really need to be married anymore. But. Right, they don't have, it's not a romantic relationship, it's like a, a, a friendship, but also like a practical partnership mm-hmm. um, in, in a cool way that I don't think I've seen before on TV. So, I, you know, I always like those things when we can find a new angle on something. So, mm-hmm. Sergio, um, I, I know that your character, that Rafe, wears a uniform, and so you maybe don't get the kind of freedom that a lot of the other characters have gotten to, like, explore in fashion, but are there things that you have worked with Magali on to sort of find little ways for Rafe to express himself. Um, the, the costume, she's amazing, Magali. And, and the costume, uh, is extremely comfortable, too comfortable to almost maybe like gain weight a little bit. <laughs> um, it's, it's super comfortable. The only, the only thing that it changed, it was last season. Uh, I got to wear red for the orgy scene. Oh, um, I forgot so about that, that scene. Different, <laughs> yeah. Um, and also I think for the, for the big, uh, musical battle, um, uh, scene, I think I, uh, there was a different color. There are different, um, kind of like vests that, that he wears. Um, so for special occasions, I think that he does, they, Magali does change it up a little bit, mm-hmm. but I think, yeah, throughout, I think it's, it's a uniform, like a official royal uniform. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the other outfits I want to call out in this episode are Margot, no surprise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Danny's just shaking her head because I'm always calling out Margot's outfits. Um, we clearly <laughs> have our amazing. tights. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she, she wears a lot of amazing outfits in them. And one thing that I noticed was that a lot of those outfits have these like shoulder pad-like elements or these like big, puffy segments like on the shoulders or the neck or the back, um, which really sort of like lean back to that like 80s feminist power suit kind of deal but notably after she actually is elected and she goes into the coronation like she's wearing a very feminine dress and her shoulders are completely bare and that seemed to me like a really like it was just such a inspired choice like she can be smaller and more vulnerable um now that she doesn't have to prove herself and that she realizes she hasn't had to prove herself all along that she really like got where she was by being herself yeah. Right. She can wear that dress and, and then also be wearing the crown of the high king. Yeah. You know, she's wearing Elliot's crown. Um, so she really has kind of the best of both. Yeah. She looks incredible in that crown, too. Yes, she like, does. <laughs> Summer always, Summer looks amazing. And it's going to be so weird to, like, have her have both eyes again. <laughs> I know. Like, she... Her eye patches are incredible, and she looks amazing in them. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was actually kind of a hard decision because we want th- there's story that comes from the fact that she gets her 
her fairy eye, but there's also, you know, it does feel like a little bit of a loss because it's been so much fun to have her in that eye patch and like, you know, just, just the pirate jokes, um, <laughs> you know, just, just that is worth it. So. Yeah. So Sergio, if you could steal anyone's wardrobe from the show, who would it be? Oh, um, oh my God. I think, I think, uh, I think Elliot's. Um, <laughs> Everyone says that. Some, <laughs> he has some like very interesting, fun things that he's worn. Um, yeah, no, I think Elliot's uh, for sure. Or just to just to piss him off a little bit, Riz, a tick. Uh, <laughs> I would love to just like show up one day, like, oh, I'm wearing this now. <laughs> yeah. I would love to see that. That would be hilarious. <laughs> it would be. You could make an entire scene spontaneously just by wearing his just by wearing his costume <laughs> and showing up in it. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, that's all I had for fashion. Um, do either of you have anything you want to add? Anything you think we missed for this episode, or shall we move on to MVP? I think you're good. I think I, th- I think we can keep on keeping on. Okay. Yeah. So MVP, it was a tough choice for me in this episode, but in the end, I, I think I have to give it to Summer with Arjun as a close runner up. I think they both displayed a lot of range in this episode. Um, I loved, I've loved seeing how Margot has been developing over the seasons from like queen bee to actual queen to high fucking king in this episode. It's so great. Um, and it's wild seeing Arjun play Penny 23. Now that we have him like out of the 23rd timeline and back in the world that we're in, I feel like I'm catching more of those little subtle nuances that distinguish him in Penny Prime. So, yeah, that's me. Summer with, like, a, a side dose of Arjun. Danny, how about you? It was really hard to choose an MVP because, like, it's definitely an ensemble episode. Um, like, um, part, like a part of me wants to give it to Summer... Part of me wanted to give it to Summer and Hale because, like, together they're <laughs> both great in that episode. And then um, I also was like, I really want to give it to Jade because Jade just, like, just the emotions that she displays on her face as Katie. Like, she doesn't even have to speak sometimes. So just her acting is incredible. Um but then I ended up saying, you know what? I'm going to give it to Humble Drum because <laughs> yes. I've been waiting as well to have him. And what's the bear actor's name? Oh, um, I forget. It's actually that we've had that same bear on the show before. Was um, he the bear who the, was um, who was a uh, Mayakovsky? The Mayakovsky bear. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it was the same bear because there's not there's not a lot of uh, bear actors in the yeah. world. It turns out. So. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So I gave it to Humble Drum. <laughs> <laughs> so David, do you have an MVP for this episode? Um, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you've just said. I think that you know, in terms of character growth from from season one into this episode, like what Summer's done is really remarkable, and I think she has amazing instincts, um, and and is just you know kind of heartbreaking at times to watch, and can be so hilarious, like. You know, we had that little, just that tiny little bit in the sort of recappy teaser where she's like calling the fairy queen a creamy bitch. Um, <laughs> and that's something that really nobody else, I think, could pull off in the same way. But I think that the person that I want to call a little bit of attention to um, is actually Will Bates. 
Oh, the composer. Is, uh, the composer for the yeah. show. Because there's, yeah, there's a few scenes in this episode um, where I just, I think that the music is just so beautiful and does such a great job of, um, you know, highlighting the emotion. Like you never want, uh, you never want the music to tell you how you are supposed to be feeling. You want it to, to kind of just lag a little bit behind and then just amplify what you're feeling. And there's two moments in this episode that I think really, really work uh, very well. Uh, in that regard, and when Margot is actually being, um, you know, installed as the High King, there's mm. there's that little montage, uh, and then the scene with Quentin and Ted at the very yeah. end. Yeah, the yeah, music yeah. is just so beautiful, and there's, I don't think there's a lot of TV shows where you even notice the music. Um, you know, I, I worked as a writer's assistant on Battlestar Galactica uh, mm. for the Sci-Fi Channel years ago. And Bear McCreary, the composer for that show, you know, I just think he's one of the best composers who's working in the fact that he does TV is incredible. And Game of Thrones, um, you know, has amazing, amazing music. And, and I like now to think that um, the music on The Magicians can fall into that same category. It's just, it, it's, it, it's incredible. So, Well, my husband will be very happy that you called out the composer since that, that's his day job. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sergio, what about you? Anyone you want to holler at? Uh, I think uh, I would have to agree with um, all of you, I guess, uh, Summer. <laughs> I just think that she, the strength and, and power that she has and uh, with the vulnerability, and she makes everything, everything work perfectly. Uh, yeah, um, she's amazing. And humble drum. <laughs> <laughs> I also I do want to shout out Jason to his oh yeah just the end, I mean the, the end scene is incredible yeah the, I mean the last two scenes for him the one with Julia where he's talking mm -hmm. about how maybe what the quest wants from him is to be cold um, I, I think that he brought a lot more depth to that scene than than was on the page which I think is always great <laughs> and then yeah I mean he's worked with Spencer before. Um, not just on this show, but also they both were on Aquarius. I mean, that's, <laughs> mm -hmm. I forgot to list the biggest uh, contributor yeah. to the editions from Aquarius, which is Jason Ralph, uh, was, <laughs> you know, had a recurring part on that show. And, you know, the, what both of them brought to that final scene really, it, it brought it up a level. And I really appreciate it because, you know, that's what you hope for when you're writing that, that the people that you're working with will not only understand understand what you're trying to do but also bring their own experience to it and their own understanding of the character to it and like those tiny little touches that you know that make you feel um that's always amazing well and and while we're shouting out tiny touches um i know that sergio didn't have the most screen time of uh, anyone in this episode but i do want to shout out just again like i Every time, every time you deliver a line, it's like your face does something, and it, it, it's like you can tell all of the like twelve different emotions behind that. And like, for me, yeah. a big part of Rafe's backstory, as I understand it, is just that he's been trained to do a particular type of thing, kind of like Fen, his whole life. And there's like a little bit of the like good good soldier spike to him of like this kind of passive resistance. Um, under the mask at all times. And uh, right. you see that again in this episode, and I really love it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so rating time. 
<laughs> this has been the thing that has made us like most nervous all season because we just this season has just blown us away and uh as last season we gave tens too early and <laughs> then we were sort of stuck um i really loved this episode and um while it doesn't have as much drama as like the penultimate episode of season two or season one did i think it does a really great job of building the tension in the lead up to the finale um, so I was trying to decide between a nine and a 10. And I think just cause we've given out so many tens, I'm, I'm going with a nine <laughs> this time, but yeah, that's my rating <laughs> nine out of 10, Danny. Yeah. I think I'm going to steal your rating. Nine out of 10 is a <laughs> solid choice. Um, this season has just been so incredible. Like it's been such a journey of TV that I just, I honestly, just, I'm so happy because like the magicians is one of my favorite book series ever. Like love is like incredible and just to see it brought to life and it's very different but it's so unique like there's literally nothing like it on tv at this moment i feel like because it's just every episode is just completely different especially this season yeah like it i i'm blown away so i'm really excited for the finale yeah it's probably <laughs> gonna be a 10 i feel like <laughs> half of half of hoping Half of every conversation I hear when I talk to other fans these days is just how how like they're so excited for the finale and they're so sad that they're going to have to have like nine months without the magicians. And yes, well, it's funny because I feel that way, too. But then there's this other part of me that's like, but that's nine months to speculate where like we don't know anything and (laughs) we can just get we can just like get into weird crackpot theories and. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I haven't been a weird crackpot theorist since uh, between, like, Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows <laughs> when the Harry Potter books were out. Um, and that was, like, a way longer wait, so I <laughs> got to speculate on that forever. Um, but you have been this it's season. Fun, it's fun. You've been a theorist. So, You've been a fan theorist this season. I see it continue. I have, and I'm really disappointed that my theory just, like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I might, I, I'm like, there's only one episode to go, but it, it, you know, the writing is on the wall for my theory too, <laughs> from what it looks like. So we'll see. Yeah, I think your, I think your theory might be dead in the water as well. I don't know. Still, it's an extra quester. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Sergio and David, I won't ask you to rate the episode, of course. I think it's really hard to do that when you're in it. Um, But I would like to know if either of you has a favorite episode from among the ones that you've worked on. So, Sergio, let's start with you. Um, uh, It would have to be of any season. Yeah. um, I have a couple. The very first one that I worked on, just because I got to see and work with them and everybody for the first time and get the energy of everybody mm-hmm. together and how uh, it's very difficult to see whenever you read a scene audition for it and get it to see to imagine how it's going to be when you're, when you're actually doing it yeah. and it exceeded my expectations just everybody and the crew and everybody that and the um, um well you know what I have three. The second one would be the last season, um, um, the musical episode, just because of the whole experience. It was insane. It was amazing. Yes. Dream come true. And then also the the first episode of this season, 301, um, just because it set the the tone beautifully for the entire quest. 
and um, and yeah, I love that. Oh, I have and uh, yeah, I guess I'm a, I guess I'm a huge fan. I also love the the uh, six short stories uh, oh, yeah. episode uh, just because uh, especially the the Marley Madden story and, and how for that specific period of time it was like the the I lived in Vancouver and the city of Vancouver kind of like died at the time. It was so quiet, the silence, but it said so much mm-hmm. and it was so beautiful, so deep. Uh, I, I love that too. Uh, and David, we actually, we definitely need to have you on for something that is not episode specific sometime just so we can, we can talk about that too. Cause I, I cut like two pages of questions. I know this has been a long interview already, <laughs> but like it could have been a lot longer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, that I, I think that the my my two previous episodes that I wrote this season, uh, three hundred four, be the penny, and uh, six short stories, uh, which I wrote with Sarah, th- those really felt like the most special of the ones I've done. Um, and you know, I love all the episodes for different reasons, but but those both felt like we were all kind of. Uh, doing exactly what we had hoped that we could do with this show, mm-hmm. um, which, which is always good. But you, you always hope that you can actually, that the show can live up to what you hope it can be. David, can I ask you one question about that episode before we leave? I know we're like... Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> okay, so I was wondering, so my stepdad is a film professor, and actually I'll, I'll probably get in touch with you sometime after this about whether or not you'd be willing to talk to him in his class, because uh, he... He does this, he has this project he's been doing for a long time and a class he teaches on silence in film and TV. And mm-hmm. when I told him about this, he got really excited because it's, he, the way he sees it, it's kind of a corrective to the film that Marley Matlin was in in the 80s, Children of a Lesser God, the one where she got her first mm-hmm. Oscar. Um, because in that movie, uh, it's the story of a deaf character and a hearing teacher, but it's told entirely from the sort of hearing perspective. I, I think one of the things I was curious about was whether you were familiar with that film, whether you'd seen it, and whether that was something that you were thinking about going into this, or whether it was just a pure, like, yeah, we have to tell the story from Harriet's point of view kind of approach. Uh, I, I I am familiar with it and I've seen it and I love it. And at the same time, there's things that, you know, I think that we as a culture are a little more sensitive now than we were even then um, to issues like this. And the, I mean, the way that that sequence came about was very early in the season. We knew that we had Marley for a certain amount of time um, before she was going to go off to go uh, be a series regular on the show Quantico. And we wanted to, you know, it's like kind of smoke them if you got them. Like <laughs> we knew that that meant we wanted to do something really, really special with her. And it was me and uh, it was me and Sarah and a few of the other writers at lunch. And she just brought it up. She was like, hey, I just got this email. It seems like Marley is going to be unavailable for, you know, such and such dates. Um, so that would that would be like episodes nine through 13 of this season so you know we should figure out a way to use her before that in what like whatever cool stuff we can come up with for her um and within the course of 30 seconds me and sarah had like riffed on it and we're like well there should be a raid on the library and she should you know go on that raid and we should you know we had a bunch of ideas and i was like yeah and the whole thing should be completely silent 
And we're like, cool, cool. So we know that. And this was when we were breaking, I think, episode 301. So it was way before it was going to come up. Um, but so when we got around to actually uh, breaking the story of six short stories about magic, we had a bunch of stuff that we owed from the previous episode. You know, mm. you set up stories and, and we've got to continue with them and pay them off. And I was like sitting at home, uh, like right in this exact, uh, and I was just thinking about it. And I was like, this is the time. This is when we should, you know, use that idea that we talked about months ago. And like, I wasn't sure if Sarah was serious about it. I wasn't sure, you know, what the appetite would be to do something like that, because it can be hard sometimes to convince everybody at every level on the show that, you know, like the studio and the network and everybody broadcast like basically that that we want to try something that might be confusing and you know we don't want people like thinking that their tv is broken um but it seemed like a really cool way to not only get into her character but like to respect marley as a as an actress who we adore and we you know i i just am like how can i write something that is worthy of having marley matlin on this show um and and it was thinking about that sequence and being like, okay, well, how do we, how do we delineate it? How do we tell the audience, like, there's a reason why only this one chunk of the episode is told in this way? Um, thinking about that problem is how we got to the structure of mm. we'll do one story and act. Because then you're like, well, there's an act about Harriet. Like, that's one act that we know that's cool. Um, and then it was the entire writer's room that, like, we pitched on the story and who we, you know, seeing seeing the character of Harriet at the different ages and, um, and like all those different stories that all kind of interweave in a cool way. Um, I, I was, uh, I, I basically compare it to the, uh, the novel Winesburg, Ohio, which is like a bunch of short stories and there's characters and events that kind of crop up across the different stories. Um, and that was the structure that, that we wanted to try that, you know, we, I've been pitching that we do that since season one. So it was like, a, uh, this was the perfect moment where we could do, that structure with this silent act. And, you know, we've got to use Harriet now because we weren't going to have her um, just because of the actress's availability. So it was like a perfect storm. Um, and then, you know, Sarah was going to write the episode, um, but she was like very, very busy. And so like, I just completely lucked out in that I cared a lot about the story. Mm. Um, and then I also got to, to write it with her, which I think, you know, I was really glad to have that opportunity. Well, thank you for answering that. Thank you for, for uh, being part of this very long interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, Sarah, I'll talk faster the next time. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's, uh, like I said, we, we just had so many questions. Um, Sergio and David, thank you both so much for joining us. It's been just delightful to talk to you. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Super fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, listeners, thank you for sticking with us for season three. I can't believe there's only one episode left. Um, if you like our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Physical Kids Pod. Bye. Bye. Mind slide.